Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. The commodity sector is in a period of extreme volatility, and this story might get significantly worse through the course of 2022. Today we're talking liquidity crises, margin calls, doom loops, and disorderly markets. There were existing challenges before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, related to COVID, related to a lack of financing and liquidity in the sector. All of these challenges have been put on steroids with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Our guest today is Javier Blas. Javier is a co-author of The World for Sale, the best-selling book on the commodities sector, which is available in paperback now in Europe and will be available on April 21st of this year in the US. And also the Spanish edition is coming in May. Javier is also the energy columnist at Bloomberg Opinion. As always, you can support the show by giving us a review on the platform you're listening on. This helps those algorithms in those platforms promote the show to a broader audience and thus help us to continue to get impactful guests and insight on the sector. And as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Javier, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me again. It's a timely episode, and I'm, I'm pleased that we can, we can have you back on because there is a lot in the news about commodities. Um, there's immediate impacts of the events in Ukraine, which we're going to talk about. There's also, um, whilst it seems a relatively small story at first, what's going on with the LME and nickel pricing, it plays into a much broader issue that is really the, I guess, the, the, the summation of what the challenges the commodity world faces. And that's liquidity, um, that's doom loops, which we'll talk about, but essentially these high prices, this extreme volatility is putting real pressure on traders on how they finance their business. Um, so that's where we're headed. Let's start on Ukraine. Can you walk us through? It's an enormous subject for the commodities markets, and it's a, you know, obviously a tragic events that are going on. Can you just help us understand kind of the the immediate impacts of Ukraine, the backdrop to what's going on there, and how that is impacting the commodities sector? Well, Paul, uh, that is the real story right now because. Um, the the, world, the global economy, the world is suffering a massive uh, energy and commodities shock as consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine that started in late February. Um, if we start with energy, um, Russia exports roughly uh, 8 million barrels a day uh, of crude and refined products. About that is 5 million is crude and close to 3 million barrels a day is products a large proportion of that diesel and fuel oil going into into Europe. We are beginning to lose some of that production. Uh, Russian output is starting to drop, perhaps not as much as as people like uh, or agencies like the International Energy Agency have expected, but certainly production is going down. Inventories in Russia are increasing and even some of the flows that they are out there, they are getting into ships, into tankers, but those tankers don't have a buyer. And in some cases, the, the, the oil or the refined products is ending on storage, which is ironic considering how tight the market is and the fact that we are releasing crude and products from the strategic petroleum reserves. And at the same time, the Russian oil is ending into storage because no one can buy it. This is an important point here. As yet, energy has not been 
sanctioned per se energy exports from Russia. Now, certain countries have banned the importation, but what is going on here is effectively, and we hear this term a fair bit, is self-sanctioning, which is a real challenge for organizations involved in the global you know, oil trade, because um, you know, you're not able to you know, use force majeure to get out of these contracts because you know, the, there's, there's a lack of buyers, basically, which is causing some real challenges right off the bat. Yeah, that's that's that that's exactly right. I mean, the self-sanctioning is it's very difficult for the trade industry because um, legally you are still having to take some of the cargos. Um, you cannot invoke force majeure as you will be able if there was a a, um, um, a new law or a, a regulation from the European Union, for example, that that impose an, an an export ban or an import ban. We are beginning to see that energy is coming into the attention of policymakers first now. With the G7, um, the European Union in full block banning uh, imports of Russian coal, uh, which is not uh, perhaps as, as a big issue as oil or gas, but certainly is the first time that the European Union is going into the into the energy area, and I think that the conversation towards oil is, is just starting and, and at some point will come. Um, gas continues to flow, um, and, and that uh, I, I think that if, if there are sanctions on R Russian energy, we will start with coal, we'll follow with oil, and the last one will be gas. And um, but but perhaps the sector where we are seeing already the biggest problems, and, and perhaps the one that it could have uh, the bigger uh, geopolitical consequences in the in the short and medium term is is agriculture. Ukraine itself is a huge exporter of vegetable oil, uh, particularly sunflower oil, and Russia and Ukraine together account for 25% of global wheat exports. We are beginning to see prices really rocketing, uh, food inflation is spreading around the world, and a lot of concern for poor countries which are food deficit and they rely a lot into the flows of the Black Sea whether they are going to have enough food later on this year. So far, the good news is that the rice market, which played a big role in the 2007-2008 food crisis when rice prices exploded, this time prices remain really under control and actually 10% lower than, than a year ago. And in metals, um, which is surprisingly the one that is getting less attention by the market, but prices also going up, Russia, obviously, a big producer on, on, on some metals, notably aluminium and nickel. Uh, we have had the troubles on the, on the LME. But, but again, a lot of tension there. And, and in metals, like in every other market, um, it's interesting because it's just not the war in Ukraine that has really triggered these price spikes. The foundations of the price spike were already there. Inventories everywhere are very low, whether you look at uh, oil, whether you look at gas, whether you look at uh, metals in general. And, and the war came on top of that trend and it just kind of became a, a massive catalyst that accelerated the price rise. But I think that even if Russia has not invaded Ukraine, we would be facing high prices, perhaps not as high, but certainly the market will be looking still quite tight. Yeah, and the one allied to mining is, of course, fertilizers. We're already seeing the impact on in East Africa, for example, of these rising prices. They rely very heavily on Ukraine and Russia for wheat. That fertilizer story, I feel, is the sort of slow-moving iceberg that's, but there's going to be an enormous impact 
you know, when it happens, because, you know, you've already got deep worries in Brazil, other producing regions that you've suddenly found yourself, well, Russian fertilizer production cut off, right, or, or, or very much constrained. That, that could be a huge impact as we enter the growing season in the Northern Hemisphere. Absolutely right. And, and fertilizer and steel, I, I, I sometimes refer to them as the, um, uh, the commodities that no one really think about them because they are not sexy, they're they taken for granted. Of course, the fertilizer is going to be there. Of course, the steel is going to be there. I mean, they are produced everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. But they, they play such an outside role in our global economy. Without fertilizer, your crops are not going to grow as much. Your yields are going to come down significantly. And without steel, well, that's the foundation of modern economy. You cannot do much on the global economy without having a steel, uh, particularly the construction sector. Um, so it, it's very important to highlight both commodities because I think that both are going to be problematic in the next few months. And uh, as you are pointing, uh, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus play a, a huge role in those markets for fertilizer and, and steel. And we're going to be very short of them. Uh, and I don't think that that shortage is, is a question of a couple of months, but something that maybe stay with us through the whole of 2022 and going into the new year. Mm. So going back to energy, it's interesting you say, so coal first, then crude and products, and then gas. And I think that's intelligible to all of us why you know gas would be last on that list from a European perspective, especially while we're still in winter. Um, staying on crude and products, is this self-sanctioning this idea that we saw very publicly you know shell buying in the window and 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 having all the knock-on effects from stakeholders and shareholders as a result and, and promising them not to do it is is this a is this the traders themselves you know taking a stance or or is this the fact that they're more worried about or can't get access access to the financing to be able to do these trades where where is that sort of divide that divide fall? Well, I think a lot of the self-sanctioning is coming uh, from public pressure on companies. Um, and, and it's notable that they, they, you, you could see a, a correlation between uh, listed companies and more self-sanctioning, more privately owned commodity traders, very little self-sanctioning. Um, it's a lot of public pressure. If you are a publicly listed company, you are going to have to take a public stand and, and also for the mayors, uh, thinking about Shell, Total, BP, it's not just the public pressure that could come from the, you know, the equity market and their shareholders. It's also that they could face boycotts. Um, you know, Ukraine is waging a very, very effective and very smart uh, uh, information campaign around the world. And it has been uh, very quick to name and shame any uh, European big oil company that has been buying Russian oil or Russian products. And that means that consumers in the West take notice and uh, the, the use of social media in particular, and there are calls for boycotts. And, and a lot of these companies have thousands of petrol stations in Europe that they really need to protect. Uh, they, they want that business to continue and they cannot be in situations in which they face uh, boycotts. And I think that the industry is learning lessons uh, from what it could sound ironic, but it's very, very similar. Uh, a lot of people are looking at how the diamond industry went through the, the wars in West Africa 
uh, about 30 years ago. And the initial reaction of the diamond industry was pretend that it was not a problem. But ultimately, the pressure was very significant and, and, the, and the diamond industry had to stop buying conflict diamonds or blood diamonds. And I think that the oil industry is looking at that uh, and, and learning the lessons. And that's what we have seen some of the sell sanctioning happening. And then you are right. Um, uh, the traders in particular, the, 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 the Achilles point of, for the traders is, is going to be uh, the banks. Uh, and you do not want to be seen as uh, profiting a lot from the war, as taking a lot of Russian oil beyond what you were taking in the past, and that financed by the banks, because the, the banks simply are going to say, no, sorry, we are not going to finance that for you. Um, and keeping the banks on board is absolutely crucial for the, for the commodity traders. Yeah, which we'll come on to why in a little bit. Just staying on that, the large global oil traders, independent oil traders, have always made significant trade by buying long-term uh, Russian oil, and you know, over over a couple many years, and financing that in kind of two-month blocks or whatever it might be. You know, I don't want to get into who's got what, but. How, how significant a challenge is that for those independent oil traders that have these take-or-pay contracts with Russia? Well, it's very significant. It has been a huge source of volume for the commodity traders, and those are long-time agreements, as you say, that they were signed before the war, and um, the, the traders cannot just say goodbye to their counterparts in Russia because legally they, they need to continue fulfilling those, those, those contracts as long as there are not sanctions on, on them. Um, so, you know, uh, and they, they are also very profitable for the commodity traders. I mean, that, that those barrels are now massively discounted and, and they can find, if they can find a buyer, well, then then they can make some very good money out, out of them. Uh, how long the European Union is going to allow that to continue? I think that probably longer than, than many people think. Um, but, uh, and, and also uh, for the commodity traders, the, the, the other thing is that it's not that only that they have those long positions on Russian oil, they, they have also shorts to fill. They have uh, agreed to refiners in Europe and elsewhere to supply some kind of barrels. And they are using those Ural, Urals barrels in particular to fill those short positions that they have with European refiners. So if one day they cannot take the Russian barrels, their, their long position is gone, but the short position may be still there and they may need to find a replacement because their contracts with the European refiners have some optional origin close. Uh, so it will be a double whammy for, for them, losing the access to the Russian barrels and they still have a short position in, 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 in somewhere in, in a refinery in Europe or elsewhere that they need to fill. And that, that could be for a trader uh, the worst of the possible scenarios. Yeah, yeah. And then there's another thing that's happening as well, which again plays into this liquidity challenge that the, the markets are going to face and do face right today. And that is, we've also seen, as a consequence of Russia's invasion, um, a number of significant energy traders exit the market. You know, obviously Gazprom is a, a very clear example of that. That's further just draining market liquidity from the sector. Do you see that as a continuing trend? How has that impacted the energy trade? Well, I think that um, the Russian traders are going to have a, um, a harder and harder time 
dealing uh, in the European market, um, in part because of self-sanctioning, in part because at some point specific sanctions are going to come on uh, the leadership of those uh, Russian um, trading houses or, um, or or their parents' companies back in in Moscow. So I I think that they are gonna they are gonna face a lot of challenges and uh, and I I feel that European banks are gonna be extremely reluctant to uh, continue supporting them. So how that's gonna play out, um, we don't know yet. At the same time, they they they, they hold massive positions in the market, uh, hedges, uh, prop, prop trading. Uh, if if that needs to un- be unwound, that that could be quite messy. As for the other traders, what we are seeing is that really the small and medium-sized traders are just struggling to get access to credit because there is a there is a flight to 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 safety and to to quality. So the banks prefer to to bank with the top tier of the commodity traders, and they're abandoning everyone else. And I don't see that changing. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And before we move on to the LME story and nickel and why that's sort of a a template potentially for what's about to happen. I don't want to sound too, too, uh, too doom and gloom um, or a Cassandra in the market. But um, it, what's you know one 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 product that has absolutely hit the media that sort of I guess very close to consumers' hearts. You know, aside from food, obviously, has been diesel. You know, are we just at the start of the run up in prices? really across the, the, the product suite and, and commodities in general, do you think, as a consequence of just these seismic shifts in in how the market is operating as a result of not only the super cycle that's been going on before in the energy crisis, but now as a result of Russia's you know, de facto sort of removal from the sector? You are absolutely right in highlighting diesel. That is uh, the product that probably is in shorter supply. Uh, Europe is very short of diesel. Um, before the war, it relies significantly on on Russian diesel and and on also Russian semi-refined products like vacuum gas oil and fuel oil to uh, to produce more diesel locally here in Europe. Uh, with that removed, the market is um, is short. Uh, it's unlikely to get any better, and the problem. Uh, with diesel is really, I call it the workhorse of, of the global economy is everywhere, whether it's trucking or farming or um, heavy machinery or freight, ships. Uh, it powers the global economy, powers transportation. Uh, the moment that diesel prices go up and we are beginning to see significant price increases, soon everything goes up because simply every good needs to be transported and it's transported on vehicles or um, aircrafts or, um, or or trains or ships that they use some kind of middle distillate, whether it is used uh, diesel, low sulfur, um, uh, marine diesel, uh, um, jet fuel, uh, and the price of transportation is just gonna go significantly higher. Um, and that means that everything else is just gonna be more expensive. Um, can we see shortages, actual shortages of diesel? I think that that's possible. I think the market just generally is extremely short of that. However, uh, I think that um, uh, in recognition to that and in recognition of how the strategic oil reserves in Europe are a bit different from the US, where most of them are in the form of crude. In Europe, we have refined products. But in this new release from the International Energy Agency, 
we are going to see quite a lot of middle distillate being released into the market, already refined. So the, the, the diesel situation in Europe should get a bit better thanks to significant, uh, a significant release of diesel from the strategic reserves. I hope my dear colleague is listening who just uh, just bought himself a diesel car about four weeks ago and now uh, now ruining it. But um, uh, OK, so let's let's move on to the 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 LME story, the nickel story, which, you know, while it started off relatively confined to just the commodities world has over the last few weeks has made its way to the back pages of many of the broadsheets and even the front pages. And I think there's a couple of elements to draw out here. One is obviously a how a, a an exchange effectively ceased and the consequences of that and some of the moral hazard challenges around that, but also a bigger question, which is have people who've been financing these trades on the back, back end, the big banks, have we, and we're starting to see this story emerge, have they been fundamentally mispricing commodity risk in this new environment? Um, can you just, for, for those who may not be as aware, can you just set up the LME and nickel story for us? What, what happened and why? Well, the LME story was a, a big short squeeze. What we mean by that, there was a, a Chinese company and a Chinese tycoon that took a bet that nickel prices were going to drop, open short positions that they were going to benefit from that. Uh, those short positions were held not only on the London Metal Exchange, which is the biggest marketplace for metal trading, uh, price discovery, risk management, but also on the over-the-counter market uh, through several banks, notably JP Morgan. Uh, Russia is a big uh, producer of nickel, and um, uh, the war started. The fear was that the nickel supplies for Russia were going to be at risk. So the price of nickel started to go up and up and up. And that started to force uh, the Chinese uh, holder to, to, to basically buy back some of those positions. He was hit by margin calls on his positions. Um, the banks were getting very nervous about whether he was going to be able to, 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 to pay those margin calls. At times he paid late. And, and everything kind of exploded in a moment where the price of nickel just went up 250% in the matters of only a few hours, a day and a half. Um, it hit an all-time high of more than $100,000 per ton, which was more than double the previous ever peak. And that forced this change to a stop trading. And not only that, but took the very unusual and, 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 and extremely contested measure of cancelling trades that have happened during several hours, and I just basically deemed them as they have never took place. Um, Chinese company reached a, a deal with his banks to, to be able to refinance positions and so on, but it has been a huge mess. The market has lost all the kind of liquidity. There are a lot of customers who are extremely unhappy because their trades were cancelled. And now both the Bank of England, the Financial Conduct Authority, the, the UK, uh, regulators are, are, are just reviewing all the events that happen and, and how that will possible um, and potentially some sanctions may be coming in, 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 the, in the medium term. Okay, so the other exchanges have been very vocal about, you know, uh, why they now represent, in their view, a better platform for traders. But the, the moral hazard story here is significant, right, is that, you know, and, and has huge ramifications for traders. 
can you just help us understand like you know why those decisions were made and what the long-term impact might be of of you know of financial traders etc and, and you know and and how they can I guess even risk manage in a world where the exchanges themselves might pull back on trades, cancel them, etc. Well, I mean, the, the big decision which was stop trading, uh, which I understand, and indeed I, I argue that it should have come earlier. It was very clear um, before this change, uh, about twelve hours before this change, shut down trading, that the market was completely not orderly. Uh, I have gone already up ninety percent on one single day. And, and, and looking at how the market was trading, it was clear that, that the market was not orderly. And I think that this change will have shut down trading at that point uh, without having to cancel any trades. I, I find unbelievable that the British financial regulator and the Bank of England have not a say uh, in, in, the, in the LME uh, continuing trading um, or that they raise no objections to that. I mean, clearly they were sleeping at the wheel because it, it was clearly a disorderly market. And then the, the, when, the, when the market went up again, another 75% or so um, and reached this all-time high, the, 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 the exchange shut down trading. But then the cancellation, the cancellation of the trades goes to, uh, well, uh, the main problem at that point was that uh, the market, the price had increased so much that whoever was short was facing humongously large uh, margin calls on those positions. Their brokers have to put those margin calls first with the exchange. And the exchange has said publicly that they, they believe that several uh, brokers may have failed that morning at nine o'clock in the morning, London time, which is the, the margins are due. Uh, my understanding is that at least four brokers were at risk of collapse that morning, perhaps up to five brokers at risk of collapse. So the exchange decided to cancel all those trades at the record prices. So to preserve the, um, the, 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 the financial um, stability of those brokers. So those brokers didn't fail, didn't fail, didn't face bankruptcy. And the question will have been, if those brokers have failed, will the clearinghouse of this change will have survived? This change have always said there was no question that they, uh, about the clearinghouse. Uh, perhaps it will have survived, but I, I think it will have suffered a massive hit if four or five big brokers have, have, have collapsed. Amazingly to me, when trading restarted, no one asked those brokers and say, gentlemen, this is the time for raising more equity. You can't, you, you, you came really very close to the, to the cliff uh, and we cannot be there. Yes, we have now price, position, uh, price limits, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But 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 your equity is inadequate to hold the positions that you are carrying on behalf of your clients. I think that those brokers will have been forced to raise equity immediately, and that's what we did in 2007, 2008 with the with, during the financial crisis. There was support to the banks and brokers and the system, but but then that came into equity dilution. Uh, I mean, the shareholders lost, and their owners of those brokers should should have raised equity. I I, I am still mesmerized that that didn't happen. Mm, and that's going to come up again very shortly. Okay, so there was a big squeeze here, and there's also some um, unique elements to how the LME operates that exacerbated this story, or indeed allowed it to to, to happen. Um, but is this indicative of a more systemic issue that 
we saw disorderly markets in nickel, in part because of this big squeeze, but also, you know, as a result of the commodity supercycle, a run up in prices, extreme volatility due to geopolitical events. And this really is crucial to our next segment. But could we, you know, is disorderly markets, is this the canary in the mine? Could we see this happen in other products, other other exchanges? Yes, we can. I mean, I think that uh, the whole market is very aware that um, trading on electricity markets can can be uh, very challenging in the next few weeks or months um, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. Uh, the same applies for um, the European main um, gas markets, both uh, in the continent TTF and the national balancing point here in the in the United Kingdom. Uh, I mean, those markets have seen at times trading patterns that didn't look particularly orderly to me. Um, things have calmed down and so on, but traders are facing huge margin calls. Um, initiation uh, margins are very high. Uh, it's very costly to trade now, but that it just goes with the territory. Uh, there's changes need to, to be aware of the volatility and particularly the clearing houses of those exchanges need to protect the stability of the clearinghouse above everything else. We cannot have a situation in which uh, just to make trading cheaper uh, so everyone can trade and everyone can speculate, we put these changes and their clearinghouses at risk. Because uh, if we have learned something from 2008 is that a lot of the risk now has been transferred into the clearinghouses. So they are too big to fail. The clearinghouses cannot fail. And therefore, they will protect themselves uh, with a lot of um, force. Uh, and that is increasing margins, both variation and initiation. Uh, and that is making uh, trading difficult. Liquidity is coming down. But I think that that's needed. Uh, I don't think that. Um, I know that that's a problem to many people. But I don't think that that's a bad thing, that margin margin, um, particularly initiation margins have got more expensive. Well, the market has got more volatile and we have seen movements in prices that previously we, we never thought that they were possible or were only possible one in every 5,000 years. And now they are happening one every five days. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so margin calls, initiation, the, the, the price at which you have to pay to put the trade on, and obviously the volatility then creates the variation, how much margin you're you're posting, if I understand it right. How does there's there's this phrase that has been starting to be used, the doom loop. And it's you know, it's creeping towards sort of again, sort of mainstream media as a potential issue that faces these, you know, the commodity markets, the you know, the and this disorderly markets plays into that. What can you just tell us how you know, one person's margin call becomes everyone's issue quite quickly. Well, yeah, I, I mean, the, the doom, doom loop, it's something that initially started more on the banking industry, referring to uh, situations in which the price of bonds come down and that reduce liquidity and the ability to the banks to, to, to lend money to others. But, but it has a, an application in, in commodity markets. And basically, um, it just the, the higher the price, the price goes, the bigger the, the margin calls are getting that is draining liquidity from the system, um, potentially forcing some people to get out with uh, buyback 
short positions would put the price even higher because you, you are really buying, which increase the, the size of the variation margin even higher, hitting someone else, etc. etc. And at the end of the day, that process goes through several cycles. Even the most financially robust uh, commodity traders may be in trouble just because the price gets to um, to levels which uh, stops being just a price and becomes more a number. Uh, and we saw that in nickel, when the market goes from $30,000 a ton to $100,000 a ton, there was no supply and demand, physical supply and demand need for the price of nickel to go there. It was just the, the particular ways and, and means of how the LME works and then the financial flows would determine that. And, and the margin calls are getting you know very, very, very large. I mean, according to the European Federation of Energy Traders, which is the, the lobby group for, for the industry, for the energy traders, um, companies that were facing initiation margins of about a billion dollars uh, last summer, they are uh, they were seeing in October about four billion dollars of initiation margins, and by March 2022 that was six billion dollars. And the same thing in terms of variation margins, uh, a company that will have expected to face daily margin um, calls uh, with cash outflows of around $50 million was seen a few weeks ago, cash outflows for margin calls of about half a billion dollars. That's 10 times. And obviously, those are numbers that many chief financial officers were not prepared to um, initially. And um, and that really put a lot of, um, put a big squeeze on the finances of many, many commodity traders, whether independent or, or on the back of the, um, um, larger organizations like utilities or oil companies yeah again this is in effect markets working right now it's it's, it's a fundamental repricing of commodities risk in this new environment um, after a long period of low volatility and low prices during that period of low volatility and low prices lots and and associated sanctions back in the, we've covered this on a previous episode and scandal particularly in Asia, lots of the traditional commodity banks, uh, many of the French ones and European ones, um, either exited the space entirely or very much scaled down their businesses. So we were already tight financing coming into this, which is where we've seen, before we come on to that extraordinary letter from the Federation you mentioned to the European Central Bank, we'd already seen the large trading houses and you did mention that small ones are going to be real trouble large trading houses trying to reach out to alternative funds private equity etc to try and you know build the balances up to be able to tackle these extraordinary initiation margin requirements now needed to participate in in their business yeah i mean that i think that to me there are three elements there uh, one is that the traders have got a lot larger, particularly the large ones, even the medium size, they have got a lot larger. I mean, a company that in the past, only a few years ago, perhaps 10, 15 years ago, was managing something like three, four million barrels a day, is today doing north of eight. The company that previously was doing no more than a million barrels a day, today is closer to three or four, and everything in between. So the size of the commodity traders have got a lot larger. And, and one wonders whether... Uh, the equity base of those companies have got uh, large enough to, to manage the, the, the new flows. Then, as you rightly point, um, we, we have seen the, the, the exit of a number of 
um, big banks who have traditionally big, big, big financiers of the industry. And I'm thinking about, in particular, BNP Paribas, which departed in 2014, and, and AVN AMRO, the Dutch bank, we, we, we departed, departed more recently. But, but a lot of the reason that these banks left was because of the scandals within the industry. BNP Paribas, in part, because it got hit by, by a scandal, and ABN Andro because of the collapse of Hin Leon in, in Singapore. These were problems within the commodity industry, that the commodity industry didn't do much about it. They, 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 they need to know that they need the banks alongside, and I think that the industry took the banking industry for granted. And then there has been another problem, and is that the banks seem to have mispriced the risk of commodity trade finance. I mean, this was seen as something that it was uh, low return, but very safe. And the last few years, it has demonstrated that it's low return, but actually not that safe uh, because of, of fraud. And um, banks have lost money. And at some point, um, the, 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 the big um, executives above the commodity trade finance divisions are asking why we are in this business. We are committing quite a lot of capital, particularly after several regulatory changes like Basel III. Uh, we are not making a lot of money. We are taking quite a lot of more risk. And actually, uh, we are getting involved uh, with an industry that it is on the wrong side of the headlines every other day. I mean, we have had many big commodity trading houses admitting to bribery and money laundering in recent years. I'm not talking about the 70s, the 80s or the 90s. I'm talking about the last 24 months. And I think that that makes the banks very nervous. And I think that they are right about being nervous. don't want to talk specifics, but you've had, obviously, these trading houses and traders and so forth that don't have the, the, the parent company guarantees and large balance sheets, etc., you know, seeking alternative funds, whether that's from private equity, um, you know, private debt, whatever that might be. It seems like you know, those organizations are equally unwilling to support those industries or the traders because again of these are the challenges of the of the risks i think that some of them are willing to 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 support the traders in some ways i mean we have seen quite a lot of money from the sovereign wealth uh, fund uh, industry coming into the commodity traders but they are coming as equity partners um they they want to to they, they want to profit from both the downside and and i mean they want to be exposed to the upside as much as risking the downside so we, we have seen, I mean, I, there are public examples. We have seen Louis Dreyfus getting the Sovereign Wealth Fund of, of Abu Dhabi. We have seen the, the, the uh, one entity of the Sovereign Wealth Fund of, of Saudi Arabia recently investing in, um, in uh, um, uh, Olam. Uh, obviously, uh, Qatar remains one of the largest shareholders of, um, of Glencore. And Beetle has a very close relationship with, with the Sovereign Wealth Fund of, of Abu Dhabi. And, and other pools of, 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 of capital. So we have seen that these private sources of capital or, or public sources in the case of sovereign wealth funds, they're willing to help the commodity trading houses, but their preference so far has been to invest either in the equity of the commodity traders or co-invest into assets. What they have not been willing is to finance the, 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 the revolving credit facilities and I, I, I don't see why they should be doing that. I mean, I, I, I think that uh, the, if the commodity traders need money, uh, I'm afraid that they are going to have to share a lot of the upside also with the, with, the, with the new financiers and not just do an ad hoc relationship for just a few transactions. Yeah, and it's the return on equity that has just been so extraordinary over the last 
you know, 10, 15 years for these organizations. Well, and that's the reason that, that the sovereign wealth funds will like to be participating on the equity because that's where the money has been made. Yeah. Just before, I want to move on to that, that extraordinary letter and the consequences of that. But I think it's just worthwhile pausing. And I, I, you know, I've heard this at the the conference I attended a couple of weeks ago. Um, I won't mention the uh, provider of the conference, <clears throat> Deferent to Bloomberg. But um, is that the conference that I used to organize? Yes, it is the conference you used to organize. It's still a very good conference, I would say. Yes, exactly. There was talk, or there's sort of this mentions of, um, you know the potential of as serious an issue as the global financial crisis were the commodity markets and this is, just sounds extraordinary to say to become completely disorganized and liquidity dry up and effectively price discovery ceases is that a potential and how cataclysmic would that be i i think it's a potential because I mean, probably we are the closest to be in a situation of effective war with Russia, as we have seen probably for the last 40 years here in Europe. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. We are arming Ukraine and we are doing it on broad daylight. This is not as just to be sending the planes at night and making sure that no one was seen in the airport during the daylight because, you know, officially everyone was denying that anyone was supplying weapons to, to someone. I mean, this is happening uh, on broad daylight. Um, I mean, we are fighting a war with, with Russia using a proxy of Ukraine. Russia is one of the world's largest commodity producers across a, a huge range of commodities we have been discussing. So if, if the conflict really becomes more widespread, we, we can see a shutdown of completely shutdown of the oil flow, of the gas flow. And I yes, the market will become completely disorderly. But you, you will expect that. And I think that then a lot of more measures w will come. I mean, if there is a shutdown of gas uh, and if, the, if Russia shuts down gas supply to Europe for whatever the reason is in the next few weeks, because Europe refuses this request from President Vladimir Putin of paying in rubles, I, I think that, um, yes, the market will be disorderly, but I think that that will be the less of the concerns in the sense that I, I will expect that the European industry will be quasi-nationalized almost overnight and price controls on energy will need to be introduced. Uh, I mean, we will be rationing gas and telling which industry is going to get gas and when. Um, so whether a particular exchange is going to have problems with margin calls, I think that it's going to be completely secondary to that. I mean, I, I will be expecting that TTF trading will stop because the European Union will shut down the market. I mean, that just sounds so dramatic. It's, it's so incredible to but, me. But just in mind that we lose we lose 40% of gas supply. I, I, I mean, one of the problems here is that we need to go back to the mentality of the early days of COVID, when people were saying, oh, we cannot do this, or we cannot do that. And we did that and many other things. Uh, the, 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 we are in a situation that is absolutely extraordinary. And if we lose because either we have to impose sanctions on Russia or because Russia cuts the supply, we lose the flow of Russian energy. Uh, actions that today seem completely unthinkable will be needed to take. Uh, Is that risk priced in, in your opinion, today? I don't think so. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm finding quite um, puzzling how little risk the market is 
pricing of these actions, in part because nothing has happened, in part because, um, you know, I, I think that these movements take, take a bit of time. I mean, it, it took time from the market to realize the extent of the oversupply in oil during the early days of COVID. I mean, I do remember when we at Bloomberg published our first big story of COVID and, and oil, which was in early February, which the headline basically read, China oil demand has collapsed by 20%. The reaction of the industry was in disbelief. And, and guess what? We were wrong. It was much larger than 20%. And then global oil demand dropped by more than 20%. And then we went to negative prices. But that took about from the moment that things really got bad to the moment that we got negative prices, it took about 12 weeks. Um, and the market took a time to really price in all of that. Um, and I think that we are in a, in a similar situation. And I think that the market, you know, and, and myself, we are really hoping that none of all of these really bad scenarios come. But is there a, a scenario in which Europe loses gas supply? Yes, I think that there is. And I, I, I certainly think that it's more than 5%, as some people say. Yeah, and I should mention we were recording this on April eighth, just in case in the in the time between us uh, recording and it being published. I really hope that in the time of recording this and and, and publication, we we don't have the interruption on, on supply. But um, it, it seems that the market is quite. Um, it seems that in general the market is really hoping for the best. Yes, as they are wont to do. Let's move on to that, to just talk about this letter from the trade federation to the european central bank essentially um asking for support in the face of of these margin calls the global commodity trading sector and the independent trading houses within it have spent much much uh, treasure and time um over the last 15 years talking about how they are they're not a systemic risk and they're not too big to fail and you know effectively shouldn't be regulated as such can you just describe what this letter was? Uh, was it broadly supported? And obviously, we now know that it's been rebuffed, um, but there's some serious consequences, even just by the act of sending the letter. Can you just walk us through that? Well, this letter came from the European Federation of Energy Traders, which is a, um, an, an industry association. It's actually headquartered in Amsterdam. And it's basically the lobby group for the uh, energy traders when, when they are dealing with the European Union in particular. And it represents uh, lots of people in the industry from uh, the uh, in-house commodity trading desk of the, the oil majors to the big utilities across France, Germany, Central Europe, to the independent traders in Switzerland, to some of the banks. And, and the Federation sent this letter uh, on March the 8th. So we were at the peak, really, of the tensions. The war has just started. And, 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 and I think that the two main points... Um, of, of this letter were, were coming on the summary of the letter. And one is high and volatile energy prices are leading to intolerable cash liquidity pressure for energy market participants. That was that was verbatim from the letter. That was the, 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 the first point that the letter made. And then the, the third point that, that the letter made was a, a, a request for liquidity support should be provided by governments or public uh, or financial public law institutions at reference to, to central banks. And, and, and to me, this was extraordinary because it, it basically said uh, in, in layman terms, we need a taxpayer bailout, um, which is the last thing I will have 
ever thought that the commodity trading industry was going to ask. Uh, and I, I was surprised for two reasons. One is because, as you very well say, Paul, the industry has spent quite a lot of time, effort, energy, money to convince everyone that they are not, not only they are not too big to fail, but they are just not, as I usually say, they're too big to be ignored. The, the, the industry actually wanted to be ignored and let alone and, and, and just operate under the radar. And this really puts the industry, all the sudden policymakers realize hold on one second, these guys who have told us for so many years, don't worry about us, we are big boys market, we know how to handle this, the industry can self-regulate. Uh, all of a sudden, policymakers realize, hold on one second, no, uh, the industry cannot self-regulate itself. They are in deep trouble right now, and actually this matters a lot more than we thought. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, so that was one. And the second point to me that was very interesting that this request came before we saw anyone in the industry trying to raise equity. So you are asking for taxpayer financial support and the industry has not even tried to do it itself. I know that everyone was reaching out to their banks. I know that there were conversations with private equity vehicles and so on, but, but the industry itself, in many cases, you know, privately owned, they can go to, to themselves, they can go to other investors and raise equity. Yes, that will dilute current shareholders, but well, that's the price that you pay when you are in a pinch. Uh, we saw Glencore a few years ago when his shares collapsed. They, were, they have a problem with debt. The market lost confidence in the ability of, of, of Glencore to repay the debt. And in a few hours, Glencore put together an emergency equity raising. They, they sold shares. And the staff, the senior uh executives of the company led at that point by Ivan Glassenberg put from their pocket if I remember correctly 800 million dollars and then London-based investors put the rest up to 2.3 billion dollars and we have not even seen that we, we we saw no attempts by by, by the industry to, to try to resolve the, the the problem within the industry but then went astray from to 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 support from the ECB which was really naive because it's clear on the mandate of the ECB that they will not support uh, these kind of companies. They are not financial companies. They're just completely outside the mandate of the of the ECB. So I, I don't really know what was the thinking behind this. I know that the letter does not have the unanimous support from the industry. There are a number of commodity traders that they are not happy of how the, what the letter said and how the letter um, uh, let's say language and communication was handled because this was clear that it was going to leak. Yeah, I was going to say yes. It was. Uh, it didn't seem like it had universal. Well, we know it didn't have universal support within the sector. Has this raised the the hoary specter of regulation? Come what may now, and what might that look like for the the commodity trading sector? I don't know how it's going to look like, but certainly I have got myself more phone calls from regulators over the last few weeks about about this letter and uh, and and how surprised those regulators were about the size of the industry the importance of the industry and the fact that it was completely and largely unregulated that i have in a very long time and i think that uh, this was it was like this was this room that it was in in in, in darkness and all of a sudden someone switched the the flick uh flick the the, the switch and and, and light came and, and then, you know, policymakers really awoke to the fact that they they know very little about the industry, that the industry is largely self-regulated and that 
uh, all of a sudden they realize that they could be problematic. And I think that after this letter, I will expect to see um, central banks and financial regulators taking a lot more interest about the industry. Yes. So it's, um, I mean, it, it's just remarkable, you know, from when we started this podcast, you know, two, two years ago, albeit in the height of, of you know, the start of COVID, just how uh, much at the forefront of global news, global politics, the commodity sector is, and just how the next few months are, might be some of the most volatile in its entire history. Absolutely. I mean, it, it is just, uh, it has been a remarkable um rollercoaster and and i don't think that we are done uh because even if you know and hopefully soon peace is achieved in ukraine and and the aggression of russia ends a lot of the trouble predates the war the lack of investment the runaway demand uh, a lot of the trends that uh, we are seeing today have been masked by covid and uh and now they are all of a sudden accelerated by the war but we have a problem before the war started with lack of investment in oil and demand of oil was rising very rapidly. Just COVID put a, a bit of a stop to that, but that was a false stop. The moment that the restrictions were lifted, everyone is back driving and, and, and flying around. And, 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 and you know, I, I like to use the example of coal. I mean, people think that it's on his way out and coal demand is going to hit an all-time high in 2022. And this is the, the the most polluting source of energy, and the one that you you just walk on the street and ask a, a random person where 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 that person thinks that coal demand is compared to ten years ago, and most likely the the, the answer is going to be well, it's down because you know that that's what is on the on the public perception that we are fighting climate change and and we are getting rid of coal, and you know well that's that's not the case. Coal demand is much higher than ten years ago, and it's about to hit an all time high trading profits from coal as well. So it's, uh, again, an all part of the cycle of certain traders have exited the space as a result of the demands from financing or self, you know, self-mandating to do so. Um, and others haven't, and that's you know, uh, causing the degra- degrading of the, the markets and, and the volatility that then ensues. So there is, there is very little finance for the industry. I mean, even today at $100 plus and record prices for coal, very few investors are coming into the sector and saying, yes, I want to put money here and I want to put this money to grow. Well, Javier, it has been an absolute joy having you on. Um, you know, look forward to having you back uh, probably sooner rather than later, given the uh, the ongoing events. And um, you know, I think the there's a you know some significant takeaways about the you know the the reality that commodity price risk has has probably been uh, been undervalued um, these last uh, few years. A pleasure always, Paul, to be on the on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.